Mote. Yakane. Welcome to season two. Yes, you heard us right. Tiny, they ready? I don't think they are ready yet. Here we are with a new season, with new guests from across the continent, sharing the most inspiring entrepreneur journeys. We got Libya, Zimbabwe, Ghana, and so much more. Welcome to season two of a series of AMS. Moti, Dumelang, Habari. You are now listening to a series of AMS. I am your girl, Binja, hailing from the green heart of Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I'm so excited to have here with me my girl, Mabute. Hey, Patience. Hey, girl. Hey, Akwaba, Jumbo, and Yakonehe. It's your girl, Patience, a.k.a. Tiny, hailing from the beautiful Lone Star Republic of Liberia, located on the coastline of West Africa. On this podcast, we celebrate tastemakers in business who are continually innovating, empowering those around them, and slaying in style. Why? Because we're all more than one thing. We demystify what it takes to start, grow, and run successful businesses and organizations across the continent. We talk to women of all backgrounds, business owners, board members, analysts, influencers, and just dynamic, trailblazing African girl magic. During our show, we will continually expose you to these incredible women, their stories, their livelihoods, and just how badass African women overall are. And we hope that you'll be able to take a little something with you from our home and our hearts to yours. So welcome to a series of Ants. Today's guest is Alima Bello. She is the creative director and owner at Bello Edu. So Bella Edu is a contemporary women's wear brand based in Accra, Ghana. Um, it is owned and managed by Alima herself. Um, Alima debuted her first collection in 2014. The brand was also nominated in 2015 during the Ghana Fashion Awards as Ghana's emerging, most emerging fashion brand. And then in 2017, the brand opened its first flagship store in Accra, and then her collection also showed in 2022 at Portugal's Fashion Week in the autumn winter um, line. Let's just dive into it, Alima, into a little bit of who Alima is. When we meet Alima in an elevator and we say, hey girl, whom star you? How do you introduce yourself? <laughs> Let's just say I don't. <laughs> who would we say I am? My name, well, you've mentioned my name. I'm a 39-year-old woman. Um, I'm half Yoruba, half Fanti, Fanti Ghanaian. Born and raised in Ghana. Um, first born child. Oh, and gosh. growing up, I never thought I would be in this business. My path was very clear. I was going to finish school, go to business school, finish business school, and work for my dad. I don't know. I guess I'm very poor at describing who I am. <laughs> it's funny because for me... It's always interesting when we talk to you that like the very last thing you say is like, oh, and I actually am a fashion designer. Yeah. <laughs> and most people would yeah. start off with, hi, I'm a fashion designer. And I think it's like um, just that bit of us where we have our identity in what we do. Um, mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that you, you, you land on that last 
so yeah. you know it's 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 efficient it's efficient um i know all the west africans on our podcast are celebrating i know patients cannot wait to jump in with her fancy self um but it's 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 part of our brand being pan-african it's, it's the culture appropriation for me I'll I be claiming everywhere. <laughs> so Alima, um, thanks for that introdu- introduction. I know Alima was like, look here, I'm a boss. I run a private elevator, okay? So there will not be a time you're going to catch me in an elevator with nobody asking me for an elevator pitch, okay? <laughs> so let's take it, let's take it back go. a little just so our audience get to know you a little bit more. Can you let us know, so exactly where in Ghana were you born and what was five-year-old Alima like? I was born in a city called Kumase. Kumase, um, I think, is the is the second most commercial city um, away from Accra. Oh. That's where I was born. Um, five year old me, five year old me. I was in class one. I was such a daddy's girl. Um, probably like yeah, like any other little girl. I had no worries in the world, mm-hmm. no cares in the world. I loved school. Yeah, I had so much fun in school. I loved my school. I had so much fun. I was just a daddy's girl. That's it. See your mates. See your mates, Binja. Daddy's girls. Well, shout out to all the mommy's girls out here, okay? We we out here too. <laughs> so, Alima, you just mentioned something I think it's important. Can, can we tease that out a little bit? You being a daddy's girl and especially coming from the culture that we all come from, I think one thing a lot of us share in common just coming from the continent a lot of time as a girl child, you know, the, the culture is different from us. But, you know, the roles that our dads play in our lives makes all the difference. And so being a daddy's girl, like how involved was your, was your dad obviously in your life? And how, you know, how did he encourage you to be this bold, you know, woman that chases her own path? Oh, my father, my father was very much involved in our lives growing mm-hmm. up. He still very much is. He wants to know what's going on. He will call, how's business? How's it going? any challenges, um, then he would share two cents. He's still very much involved. Our father's, he's a go-getter, and I think we all got that entrepreneurial spirit from him. Mm-hmm. Um, all my siblings are out there, you know, chasing their dreams, building on something, and I think mm-hmm. we've got that energy from him from a very young age. Mm-hmm. He exposed us to the importance of, you know, chasing your dreams mm-hmm. and, you know, fighting for your own. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said about having the presence of a father in a mm-hmm. household and even not only having that presence, but having a relationship. Yeah. I think a lot of men say that yeah. they were around, but they didn't really actually cultivate a relationship. Yeah. And I think when you talk yeah. to people who identify as daddy's girls, either they're like, like super spoiled yeah. or extremely stubborn. <laughs> And, and I think the way Alima is describing it, especially with all your siblings, it sounds like one, you actually had a relationship with your dad and you still continue to do so today. Um, but also the role he played was more active than just I'm checking off the box as being a male head of household in the spot. Yeah, right. For mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But Alima, I think I, I do have one quick question because you mentioned boarding school and you've mentioned Kumasi. Was was boarding school still where you were growing up in Kumasi or did you have to no. move around for boarding school? No, no, no. So boarding school was in Cape Coast. That was like a three hour drive from Kumasi. And um, growing, yeah. So that's where there are a lot of um, 
what we call, um, the, we have a term here, we refer to them as mission school. So there are a lot of them, um, a lot of the senior secondary school, like high school, boarding school, the traditional ones that everybody, growing up, everybody recognized as good schools. Most of them were in Cape Coast and in Accra. So I went to a Catholic boarding school, all girls. Um, I was there from about the age of 13, 14 to about the age of um, 16 or 17. So three years. I spent three years in boarding school. And those were, those were like your, you, like, these are really important stages in your life um, where you've, you're like just been ushered into, a, into teenagehood and your personality is really forming. And you're easily impressionable as well. Spent three years there, all girls' school, all Catholic. So you can just you can just imagine the rules that we had to follow. The funny thing about talking to people who went to West African boarding schools is different from people who were in like East Africa and South. And you know, we talked to somebody else who was Ghanaian, and there was a lot of. Um, we, they cut our hair or they require our hair to look a certain way. Um, there was a lot of, the rigor is still there, right? Boarding school is boarding school. Mm -hmm. Um, but it seems to me as though there was so much of an emphasis in terms of what like the African girl child is going to look like in a boarding mm -hmm. school. Was that the same, um, for you? It's the same thing. And I remember having a conversation with my mom's younger brother who is, um, who's a teacher, a government trained, works at the government schools, because most, most of these um, boarding schools I'm talking about are government owned, right? Mm -hmm. And yes, they were, we were made to cut our hair um, going into boarding school. And I've always asked what the reason is, because I have really assessed or I have thought about um, what could really be the reason to say or to insist mm -hmm. that girls should cut their hair and have their hair like, you know, so you have your hair like a very natural level, like cut your hair like almost like a boy, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Short. You don't braid your hair. You don't, you know, you don't, you don't have it in the long strands. Mm -hmm. Short. And my, my uncle, I don't think he was even able to defend it. He said something in the lines of maybe they think they want the girls to concentrate on their studies and not use their hair as competition. But then I was also trying to educate. Yeah, I was also trying to educate him that um, if you had made girls go to school with their natural hair, girls would have learned how. To, girls would have learned how to appreciate and take care of their natural hair from a very early age. Yeah, and. Um, who said anything about me competing with a girl who's sleeping next to me because of hair right. at that age, you know? Exactly. So I really don't know what the real reason, what could yeah. possibly be the real reason for that. Um, I, I wish they would scrap that. I know they still do it, but mm. I wish they would actually scrap that to the young girls, because especially when you're a teenager, that's when you're coming to, like, you know, accept your body, and you would want to let the girl child feel confident in the body that it's been giving her and yeah. the hair that she has. And then she could learn 
take care of her hair and appreciate her, you know, the, the different textures of of her of her hair. Yeah, you know what? Um, yeah. This this. Go ahead, go ahead, Aliwa. No, I'm just saying it was that was it, and the emphasis, you know, and one one other thing for for the school that I went. To, the school that I went to, we pro- we pride ourselves in in nurturing confident women, like girls into women. But when I cast my mind back experiences, I'm like, everything that you did there wasn't to bring out any confidence in me. It's like bull crap. Mm. They had mm. a rule. They had a rule that said obey before complaint. And obey before complaint literally. Baby, before complaint literally meant a teacher or a senior could accuse you of something, punish you, and you were supposed to take the punishment before you defended yourself. It's like the slave, the slave colonial master like mentality. And I hate that. And like going back to the hair, the hair situation, Alima, this it's still it's such it's one of the most problematic thing i think that also exists within african schooling across the board regardless of what region you find yourself in and this started doing like the christian ministry was it christian missionaries back then that colonial shit they wanted african girls to cut their hair because they felt like african hair wasn't desirable it was untamed it was ungodly that's how it started so pretty much to, 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 to discredit our own beauty and our strength that comes, you know, from within us as women, from our hair and whatever the case may be, even with our confidence. And so it's like to, to make us less than, you know, they, they, they made people who, the, the, the girls who were attending schools, they had to cut their hair to attend these schools because their hair was considered ungodly. It was untamed. It was all over the place. It wasn't like white hair, all types of nonsense. And to still have our people post-scramble of Africa, post-colonial time, for these fools to still be continue this horrible, deplorable, you know what I'm saying, action is so problematic. Because like you said, even if they're using the excuse of, oh, we want girls to pay attention to school because they're here, that holds no basis. There's no evidence that proves that. There's people who got hair that went to Harvard. Okay, like what the heck that got to do? You know, what What does hair got to do with, with my grades? Nothing. It, absolutely nothing. And I feel like it's this same, you know, colonial mindset that we are just continuing. And our people, even though they know better, they don't want to do better. And, you know, and it's just, it, it's problematic. And going back to that rule that you just said, oh, oh, what was it? Like, um... Obey first and ask later. Obey, See, obey, obey, yeah. obey I, before complain. Before See, I wish this is why I didn't. This is why I didn't go to no boarding school in Ghana. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Okay, I was known to get in trouble. Like, and going back to the hair thing. Going back to the hair thing. Another point, Benja. Maybe I'm not sure if this happens in your context. What was so? What was an additional insult for me when I was in Ghanaian school? Because I also went to private schools in Ghana. Was that? You know, the, the student body is diverse. And so we have like white counterparts in schools, like Lebanese, Europeans, whatever, right? That were my classmates. And these mofos, you know, were, was allowed to wear their hair. But the African students had to cut theirs. So I said, look here. Okay, me and my mom would cook something up. And we went to that school and told these people that they cut my hair. I'm going to die. You know, um, 
<laughs> we pull some Samson and some Delilah ish up in this place. Like, look here. Hey, I'm like, because you know, Alina, I'm also, I think for four years, but I'm also half Indian. So my dad is Indian. And so I just play that ish to my to my benefit. I said, look here. Okay, I might be half African, but I'm also half Indian. So like, these people, these Lebanese out here that are just like me. Got their hair going on. I need to get mine going on too, okay? Because this is Samson and Delilah. If y'all touch my hair, I'm just going to die. <laughs> so, but that was, you know, all jokes aside, that was so, for me as a kid, right? Just looking at that as a black African kid, looking at my European counterparts or white counterparts, getting the freedom to express themselves creatively through their hair, through their wardrobe, through whatsoever. And then we have to downplay ours or downplay our beauty or feel like we're less than. And it was coming from our own people, black teachers, black head people, black, you know, principals. And you're looking at them like, what the hell? And that's why that rule does not stand at all. So if you're going to tell the African students to cut their hair, but the white students can't, then what do you think that is? That's you reiterating like colonial rules. That's you putting us down. You know what I'm saying? So exactly. I don't know if the teachers and authorities, those in authority, if they had even reached a, a level of consciousness for them to understand what it was that they were doing to the psyche of their students. I don't think they understood because there were so many things. There's so many things when I look back, I'm like, fuck it. Why was I in that school? I hated my boarding life experience because it was a complete opposite of what I knew and I remember very well when I was in boarding school I used to write letters home my first year I used to write letters home all the time asking for my dad to come and get me and my dad my dad one time just got fed up came over and said you need to stop writing those letters you're going to finish boarding school because I don't think at that time I don't think our parents you know actually understood nobody nobody was ready to hear me out they probably thought okay that's just another spoiled brat Mm-hmm. Rat moves. Mm-hmm. Just back home because you're not used to the system. But looking back for a school that pride itself, and to date they still pride themselves in you know bringing up well-rounded women, um, ambitious women, confident women. There's so many things that are wrong with the way that we were raised. Why were we not able to speak up to mm-hmm. teachers? Why not create an environment where if something's wrong, you can feel confident enough to go to the authorities and speak about it. I had one of my very good friends who, I mean, God bless her. Um, her personality hasn't changed from boarding school to now that we're even in our 40s. But I remember very well that when we got to final year and they were, they were going to final year and they were looking for nominations for positions, her name came up and the teachers actually had a meeting and said, no, there's no way they're going to give her a position or let her go through the election because they didn't like her. She was confident. They didn't like it. They didn't like it. So if she was somebody who was not raised well by her parents, that could have broken her spirit. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But that's that break her. I see her soaring and I see her, I see her stronger than she even was in Holy Child. So imagine if she didn't come from a home where she was made to, like she was appreciated for the Mm -hmm. qualities that she had Mm -hmm. and she was being encouraged. That could have broken her spirit. Because how do you say, how how do teachers sit in a room and have a meeting and say, oh, we can't have this person become a prefect, a school prefect. She's too strong. She's too opinionated. I think what what it does do, though, what it does do is it breeds 
um, generations and generations of compliant women. Mm. Women yeah. who will not stand up for yeah, themselves, but mm. they will comply. And I think the the idea that's the word uh patience the idea of having a docile african mm. that has always been part of the mission of colonialism mm. that has always been the mission of whiteness that has always been the mission of subjugating africans and i think where where better to start that process than couching it within education mm. right because what do we say as africans everybody must go to school everybody must get educated educated education is the key to success how many schools have that in their motto mm. but then yet and still they're the same places that teach compliance mm. you know because if really you were teaching for people to be um what do you call it enlightened right you would be open to having a socratic method right where you as a teacher can propose a, a concept we talk about it and we have a back and forth right mm-hmm. however that is not the case i'm teaching you so you learn how to do what i say not even necessarily as i do but for you to be a model student mm-hmm. is based on how well you comply how well you listen how well you listen to what i say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right not necessarily based on any facts or foundation but because of who i am as an authority mm-hmm. figure and yep. i think even when you when we continue yep. growing up and we're looking at african women that are held in esteem mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. who is the the most the most esteemed one oh she's the one who is the most feminist the one who is cooking and cleaning and yes to my husbanding and yes to my children and i will carry my children and my husband's burdens on my back until it crushes me but i will not complain right where do we learn that none of this is is happening on its own right not feminist feminine i'm like feminists they hate us <laughs> you're absolutely right and i remember another incident in my class we were in i think we must have been in form two or form three i don't remember the form but we're given questions like your final so you know the whole of west africa we all write the same exam like final year exams so and when in preparing us for our final exam um business math there was a set of questions that was brought and usually the teachers there's a governing body that they have what they call a marking scheme so it has the solutions to the problems right so they give us the question in class we solved it and the teacher was like now nah, according to the marking scheme this 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 and we said we did it together with the teacher and we realized that the marking scheme was wrong we realized the marking scheme was wrong. So we challenged that. I think we must have been informed too. And what should have been a triumphant moment for a teacher to say, oh, wow, I've taught my girls well. They've looked at the problem. They've solved it. The teachers or the governing body made a mistake. We got reported to the assistant headmistress that we're challenging teachers who have sat on the mm. African Examination Council <laughs> hit the board and we're challenging them saying that the thing was wrong but we were right Chai. we got a whole lecture mm-hmm. we got a whole lecture how dare us how dare us something that should have been a triumphant moment for you to even write to your West African examination council and say you know what guys you might want to revise this document because the girls mm-hmm. in that class mm-hmm. and the girls in the school looked at it studied it and realized that there was a problem and got chastised. So you're not supposed mm-hmm. to condemn or you're not supposed to point out when adults are wrong. And then at the same time, you're telling me that mm. you're trying to raise me to be a confident human being. 
No, you're not. Mm-hmm. You're raising me to comply. And for me, that was the problem. There were a lot of girls, you know, some of these things, when I try and recount, people didn't go through it, they didn't see anything wrong with it. But where mm-hmm. I was coming from, there was everything wrong with it. My primary and junior high education didn't teach me that. I came from an environment where mm-hmm. we were taught to express ourselves. Our opinions muttered. And all of a sudden, I get dumped into this on top of a hill where you're, you're being told clearly for the next three years, you have no opinion. You're supposed to just follow the rules and do as we say, or we're going to label you or we're going to punish you. You know what I, I really do appreciate, especially knowing who you are now, is, is, is at least you were able to unlearn a lot of this behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think the trap is is carrying it forward and making it gospel, mm-hmm. right? I went to school in Botswana. I went to junior high school in Botswana. And I always tell this story um, where <coughs> we had a headmistress and we didn't have the compliance requirement, but what she always said to us, um, especially boisterous people, extroverted people like myself, was always women are to be seen and not heard, right? And you, you, you think to yourself, you're a head teacher, yeah. you're in this position of power. Instead of saying to women who you're seeing as having these leadership qualities, instead of saying, hey, this is how I got to be where I am, you perpetuate misogyny, you perpetuate like these old colonial mindsets. And I think that is the part where being able to sit here and have this conversation as women we can actually acknowledge the things that we had to unlearn. And a lot of that doesn't just happen to us. Like we just didn't happen to, you know, be on the African continent and, and be in these schools. We had to actively like unlearn a lot of what, you know, we would have become these compliant women, but we had to unlearn all of those behaviors, all of those attitudes, all of those teachings to become like leaders. You know, Alima, you're not leading your team based off of compliance, right? You're, it's, it's like an open forum and I know we'll get there, but um, it's, it's, it's crazy to me when people um, still have those qualities as laudable, whereas the, the women are not good. They're just compliant. Yeah. If you really do want to know what yeah. your grandmother thought about your grandpa, you know, why are they having those conversations only among women where they're like, oh, no, 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 let me give you advice before you get married. Why are we not saying these things out loud? <laughs> you know? Right. Absolutely. Right. I mean, there's just a lack of critical thinking, you know, for us at a young age. We're not exposed to critical thinking, not in the, not in the schooling system. And sometimes you don't come from a certain background in terms of exposure in your family, you may not even get that either. Let, let's fast forward a little bit more here, Alima. So we go through high school. Um, mm-hmm. And I know in the beginning you had mentioned that, you know, you were kind of being groomed for this role um, to take over for your dad. Um, and I think we'll, we'll get to that. But what, where do we go next after you get through your 16, 17 year old, 17 year old um, period at boarding school? Um, do you leave the country? Do you stay in the country for college? What do you do for university? Where do you go? Oh, so I stayed in the countries um, for my university education. I went to University of Ghana Business School. I think I went when I was 17. I was 17. Because I remember I celebrated my 18th birthday my first year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I went to Ghana for four years, um, did business, and then I majored in insurance, um, spent four years. And I think um, those were the most 
I think it was it was such a beautiful moment in my life because number one, like, well, I didn't even know I was still going to end up in fashion anyway. Mm-hmm. But university was where you know you you didn't have your parents, you know, giving you instructions at the back of your head every single day. You didn't have a bell of a secondary school, you know, telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. You literally had to find your own rhythm within the constraints of the university education. So I remember um, quickly developed my own pattern as to how to survive the uni, which was excellent. It almost like, like, you know, are you some way, somehow okay to manage on your own, which was exciting. Don't get me wrong. My father was there every Thursday. My father was there. My father visited every Thursday. Even though I vehemently said to him, don't come. There's no point. There's no need. <laughs> this man knew my timetable. He knew where to find me if I wasn't in my hostel. He will come to the business school block. The security guards knew him. I'll be in the, I'll be in the library. As a security guard will come and be like, your father's downstairs. My father will come. The elevator the one elevator that was in the business school that was supposed was reserved for all people who were really in need of it. Yeah, my father, you catch him using it. He's coming up. Like, Daddy, what are you doing here? <laughs> He's like, it's Thursday. It's Thursday. I told you I'll be here. Okay. He knew. He knew. Like, you know, if he showed up on campus at this time, he was going to find me either at my hostel or the man knew my timetable. It was so annoying. So how did you feel your Thursday with your dad? What were, what were you guys doing? With my dad? Oh, my God. He would just come and spend time. He would just come. It's not like he's even picking you up and taking you out for lunch. He would be like, oh, yeah, yeah. So I have my meetings in the morning. I'm done. So I came by to see you. And, um, and your money. How are you doing for money? I'm like, daddy, you, um, you put money on in my account, so we're okay. <laughs> so I don't know why you're here. And he's like, well, um, I, have to, I have to come and visit you. I have to come and check. And he'll ask random questions. If you look at your hair, I'm like, oh, your hair really grew. Or do you have hair extensions in your hair? Let me see. I'm like, daddy, <laughs> why, why are we doing this here? <laughs> I love your dad, first of all, just off of this one story. I feel like I, I literally went to a whole other continent so I know my dad could not physically get to me when he wanted to, but I'm loving the fact that there is no story, but me, I just want to see you every Thursday. That's the whole point of this conversation. There's no story here. I just want to validate you're still alive. It wasn't like something had happened. No, nothing had happened. But every Thursday, between, between noon and 4 p.m., between noon and 4 p.m., there was no definitive time, but between noon and 4 p.m., yeah, mm-hmm. my father would show up on campus. And depending on what time he would show up, he would know, okay, she must be in the library or she's, you know, down at a hostel. And he'll pop up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and here we are thinking Asians have helicopter parents or tiger moms, right? That's what we call right, them. Yeah. And, yeah. and yet Alima's dad in university, this man said, is me and mm-hmm. you still. Still. My, my sister and I would beg him, like, what are you doing? Like, why, are you, why are you here? Why are you embarrassing us? Like, like I don't care. What do you mean I'm embarrassing you? Mm-hmm. We love a, a, a very involved father, okay? Shout out to the involved fathers. 
Not the ones that be out here acting like they ain't got no children or daughters, okay? Like, these are not personal experiences. This is us just saying it out here just like that, you know? I, I, listen, do, do with it what you will. Um, so school-wise, Alima, you said that you went and you were studying insurance. Yes, insurance. I majored in insurance. Yeah. I'm trying to put one plus one to make sure that it gives me a two because right now it's giving me a five because I'm like... See, what happened was she said it was insurance and she said it was business school, but she's a fashion designer. So I'm, I'm, I'm slow walking us to, to how we got to where we are. Let me walk you through how we got to where we are now. So, I mean, remember I said, um, I mean, my father said, you're going to study business. So when I got to business school, there were different courses under business management. There was banking and finance. There was insurance. There was marketing, mm-hmm. there was health administration, and the most popular was banking and finance. Mm-hmm. And like I said, my background, my primary and junior high school that I went to in Kumase, I was used to very small sized classes. Mm-hmm. So I was used to being in a class of maybe 29 students mm-hmm. to a teacher. And then Holy Child were like 30 something. So when I went to uni and everybody who was in business school, was fighting to major in banking and finance. Mm-hmm. The very first question I asked myself, which other course is similar to banking and finance but doesn't have a lot of people? Mm-hmm. And insurance was quite new. So mm-hmm. whereas business, banking and finance probably had maybe 200 to 300 kids doing it, mm-hmm. insurance, we were like 40 or 45. Okay. And that was the perfect size for me. I said, why not? Let me just do that. Because I like to have engagement with my teacher so that's why i chose insurance like like i said the four years of me in university not once did a career in fashion ever crossed my mind mm-hmm. it wasn't anything i never i can't even say i even thought about it for one time it never crossed my mind because it was you're gonna finish you're gonna work for your dad so fast forward i finished uni start working for my dad and uh, when i started working for my dad that was the longest time that I had actually stayed put in Ghana and not traveled because we, we had this thing where when we're in uni, every vacation we would travel. We would travel to England. And of course, as kids, what do you do when you travel to England? You just shop. You just buy clothes. You just come over, like, you know, buy clothes, come back to school with new clothes. So when I started, when I finished school and I started working for my dad, that was the longest stretch of me being in Ghana without traveling. And I was like, okay, I can't find the kind of stuff that I like. Because my father said, well, now that you're done with school, no more me buying you tickets to go to England. If you want to travel to England, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to save your own money and go. Meanwhile, this old man was not paying my checks. So how am I going to be saving money to go to England? You're not paying me like you're paying your other work. Wait, 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 wait. Let, let, let's start here. So you were working for your dad, right? You graduate university, you're working for your dad. So what did your dad do? You mentioned a factory. What were you guys doing? And then when you worked with him, what were you doing? So my father owned a vegetable oil mill and an oil refinery. So we're refining oil from oil seeds like soybean oil, peanuts, palm kernels, and then refining. So those are units that was doing the crude and there was another unit that was refining the crude into like, you know, cooking oil. We are doing it. And most of his buyers were like bulk buyers. So at one time, like refined, um, crushing palm kennel for like Unilever. And they were making all, they were using it for soaps, so using it for, you know, the cooking oils. 
um, some of the making factories were also buying from them. So that was, that was my father's business or the business that he set up. But then an African entrepreneur who's hired his family. I'm like, you're living in my house. You're driving my You're going to get paid peanuts. Free 99. And as a matter of fact, the month where the company is not doing so great, everybody else gets paid and you don't get paid. Because after all, what do you need the money for? You're living in my house. Mm-hmm. you're still driving my car and we're, and we're, buying, we're buying you fuel so this so imagine you're telling me that you're not going to buy me tickets to go to England anymore I should save my own money and, and go but you're not paying me so what am I saving the money for to go so that was a period where I'm like I don't even know where I'm going to buy stuff to wear it's like the shops these are individual boutiques that are selling stuff that they bought. You probably find something that you like, but it will not be in your size or not be in the color that you like. You know what like. So then I started following my mom to her seamstress. And I'll give the seamstress maybe something, a style that I liked. I'm like, you know, can you have this done for me in this fabric? And that's where the passion, mm-hmm. and that's where the passion came from. So mm-hmm. I would follow the seamstress all the time, have stuff made for me. And then I think about... I think 2008, that's when I realized fashion, African fashion on the continent was really growing. There was African mm-hmm. Fashion Week in South Africa. In Nigeria, there were beautiful brands coming up. I remember very well there was, um, I got introduced to Jewel by Lisa, Larry da Silva, um, Temple Muse, the store in 2008. So I was like, okay, things are happening. People are actually, you know, crafting businesses and careers out of this. And even in Ghana, our very own Christy Brown was launched in 2008. So, mm-hmm. and then she launched even one. Yes, very lovely brand. And she actually launched while she was still in uni. So mm-hmm. that's where the light bulb hit, like, you know, went off my head. Oh, so you could actually, you know, create a business. Like, this could be a thing. And slowly, I was like, okay, then I want to try it out. Like, I want to see what I can make out of this. And that's where the, I would say, that was the beginning of of my interest in creating or being part of the fashion, you know, world. So so it seems your fashion, your passion for fashion ignited from your own personal styling. You know, you... Mm-hmm. Seeing that there weren't things out there in the market that you really liked or that fit your size and going from mm-hmm. there, putting your own, you know, your own spin to it, your own creativity to it. That started igniting like your passion and then seeing your other peers, you know, exploring that avenue as well, encouraged you or inspired mm-hmm. you. Like, you know what, this is actually quite feasible. This is really, I can make this happen, you know, um, as a real, a mm-hmm. real career. So coming from working with your family, at family's business, that sort of legacy, generational well-building type of, you know, um, context. How did your family take it when you chose to, especially you said, you mentioned earlier, oh, you were the first child, the firstborn. So all that responsibility is on you. You know, when your daddy was creating the business, he said, you know what? When it's, when it's time for me to retire, I got my firstborn, she's going to take over, you know? And so I'm sure you're now telling him, you're like, look at daddy, okay? Um... This is great and all, but, you know, there's something else I want to, you know, explore and make my own. So what was that conversation like and what was his sort of response to that? You know, 
the hardest bit of all of that mm-hmm. was me convincing myself that I was not being selfish. Mm. And I was, I was disappointed by that because mm-hmm. I had, you know, you were built a certain way and you almost feel guilty for having this strong urge or thirst to venture out on your own mm-hmm. that it's almost impossible to even sit down and have a conversation with a person mm-hmm. without giving the person the benefit of the doubt saying, you know, they just might understand. It took me, it took me, it took me close to three years just mm. to like, you know, um, go ahead and have a conversation with him about it. Mm-hmm. But then when I finally did, he was so welcoming of it. Mm. He didn't even he didn't even stand in my way. There was no emotional blackmail. Mm-hmm. So all of that, all of that fear was in my head, thinking as a first child, you're disappointing him. He's you know carved this feet. You're supposed to be helping. All of that was in my head. But then when I sat him down and told him that this is what I wanted to do. It wasn't difficult. It wasn't difficult. And he's one of like my biggest fans. I mean, whenever whenever he's in the city, he comes to the studio for coffee and oh. like, you know, he'll call me and find he'll he'll call me and find out what's happening in business. Mm-hmm. He'll find newspaper and then he'll send me articles. Or oh don't you you know, the little that he knows, like, yeah. you know, don't you want to go to the person's exhibition? Don't you want to go do this? I love that. The station of Ghana and sent you know a newsletter there's an exhibition happening in amsterdam or dubai or something Mm -hmm. you know so he's supporting the best way that he knows how Mm -hmm. and you know sometimes i think about like what if i made my fear you know take over me Mm -hmm. and i wasn't bold enough to have a conversation with him Mm -hmm. i wouldn't be Mm -hmm. i would have been in kumase working doing something that i had no passion for honestly alima it's It's such a tale, like, between how how you and your dad's paths continue to, like, weave Mm -hmm. between, Mm -hmm. you know, your boarding school life and and the letters. And then you go to university and he's still showing up. I think my my curiosity comes more in terms of, like, what it is you feel like you've learned from your dad. Because he's been so involved in your life in, in such a granular way, right? Where... In a regular sense, you wouldn't think a dad is is literally showing up every Thursday while you're at university, yeah, and then you know yeah, showing up, and and then and then he's built this thing, and it's a very tangible thing. It's something that he's thinking generationally. You know, I'm going to be able to pass it down, and you show up for the job. You're at the role, you know, and then it's actually I'm gonna pivot. And yet and still, he's still supportive. Like, what what do you feel like you've taken away from your dad in that relationship um, the most? Oh, dear. Hmm. Can I even, you know, is there any singular? I think from him, one of the biggest things, each, each like, one of the biggest things I've learned and my siblings have learned from him is go after your goals. Go after your goals. What's the, what's the worst that could happen? That you're going to fail? That's nothing. Failing at something is nothing. In fact, my father doesn't even know failure. My father's 70 something and he still has dreams. You know, go after uh, go after your goals, go after your dreams. I think that's the that'll be the singular thing that we've learned from him. Mm-hmm. And we would we'll, we'll have to. And he mm-hmm. doesn't settle. Mm-hmm. 
settled on his own terms. And you might not agree with him, but those are his terms. Mm-hmm. And he's going ahead with it until he hits the brick wall and he'll be like, nah, nah, maybe I should have done it that way. But he doesn't, he doesn't settle. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He doesn't settle. So that's, that's, these are the valuable things that we've learned from him. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I can see how that carries. But it also makes me curious then, when you're in a factory, right? I'm assuming, and you can tell me because you were the one who was there. I'm assuming you're working with probably more men than women, right? Your dad is instilling this quality of you kind of being a leader, right? Because the expectation is my firstborn daughter, who is now here, fully educated, degree in hand, working on the floor, is going to lead, right? You mentioned that he's somebody who is very resolute, right, in his decision-making, in his walk. Um, so how was that, working in such an environment, knowing, of course, you're about to pivot, as you mentioned with your mom, but what was that like, if we can take a step back here? So my father never raised us to think, this is a man's world, and this is what you, as a female, this is your role in the man's world. Mm-hmm. I remember vividly my very first week, my father threw me into a collective bargaining agreement. As said, <laughs> a collective bargaining agreement meeting, a discussion with trade union executives who were old men. Mm-hmm. And like you rightfully said, the factory was filled. So at that, when I joined my father's factory, my father at one point had a hundred factory, a hundred workers. Out of the hundred workers, I could tell you there were probably only three females. So, so he throws me into this environment where the odds are me because number one, you're the boss's daughter. That's odd number one. Number two, you're you're female, and number three, you're young. What do you know? You know, he didn't even have a conversation with me about it to even psych my mind. Mentally, he didn't even prepare me. He just said, well, this is what you're doing. You're, you're here. This is what I want. And I remember very well the day, of the, um, the day of the trade union discussions. He said to me, today you're going to go, today, today you're going to, go to the factory first um, before I come in. There's going to be a meeting. Um, union executives are coming from Prague. And then we have representatives in Kumasi as well. And then even from the workers. And then we have a other time, the guy who was in charge of human resources, we have a personnel manager who's going to be there. And he said, Alima, your job is whatever they're negotiating, slash it into three and start negotiating from there till you come to the middle. That was it. I didn't, nobody taught me that. But then he threw me in and halfway through, and this meeting went on for six to eight hours. Mm-hmm. Every now and then, these old men will interject and say, but what do you know? You're just the owner's daughter. They'll just chime that in. And, and then your job is to just ignore that statement and then just fight for what my dad said I should fight for. Mm-hmm. So if they were asking, if the workers were asking for, say, X number of days for paid leave, mm-hmm. my job was to make sure that we're, we're legally staying within the confines of the law, of the labor law. And, you know, going to excesses. That was hectic. So that was my introduction. We didn't have any chat about you're a female and you're entering a male-dominated industry. 
and I need you to behave mm-hmm. this way. Or be- no, 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 no. These were the goals that we were trying to achieve, and your job is to make sure that we achieve that. So mm-hmm. when I started working for him in the factory, I started off by, you know, understanding, so like managing the office, understanding what each manager, each person's role was playing, and then gradually went up to manage the operations of the factory. So mm-hmm. um, literally be there. If there was night work at some point, we'll be there during the night shift, making sure everything mm-hmm. is happening. My sister, and mind you, each of my siblings also worked in the factory as well. My sister also finished uni and came to work in the factory. My brother also came to work. So we've all, we've all gone through the factory and then we've all come out and we are all pursuing our stuff. And I would say mm-hmm. that was such a good ground. It was such a good ground to prepare me for the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best ways, having to manage, and you know, the factory hands, especially the factory hands, are people who I would say were like semi-formal. And mm-hmm. like, um, so having to manage and having to navigate that um, that environment with them because you know mm-hmm. you're working for men or you're working with predominantly men mm-hmm. and egos get in the way so, yeah. but at the same time you're not across as a disrespectful person because you don't want people to think the boss's daughter is misbehaving and being disrespectful just because she thinks she can mm-hmm. and you still want people to and achieve results yeah. um, so I think it really prepared us each of my siblings and myself, it really prepared us for the real world. So when we're ready to step out and go after things that we wanted, we were more adjusted to the kind of different working environments that you would meet in the real world. And honestly, I always find that like there's really no better education than kind of being thrown in in there, right? Because for example, yeah. if he had prepped you and primed you your reactions, your authenticity, like everything that you brought to the table that day wouldn't be the same, mm-hmm. you know? Um, even the way you, you've, you've kind of rounded off your thought there by saying, you know, you kind of had to know and get to learn every single person in all their roles. I think that speaks a whole lot to, to how you are and what kind of leader you are today, right? Because none of that is given. If people had handheld you, through boarding school, right? When times were hard, if your dad had come in and said, yeah, I'm going to pull you out, you know, or even in university when you said, you know what, everybody's going to do banking. So let me also hop in that track. I think the biggest thing that I'm taking here is the lessons that you are learning from your dad, while they were not something that he sat down and said, hey, let's have a conversation on it, right? You're able to extrapolate all of that through the experiences he he gave you pretty much by throwing you in a lot of fires. <laughs> and I'm assuming this is just one of many examples for you. Um, and I'm sure your siblings can probably say the same oh, thing. Yeah. But this is it, it's got to be. Oh, yeah. It's got to be like one of of my favorite ways, because sometimes I can only tell you so much about how to approach a situation. But most of life is lived. You know, you can read as many books as you can about leadership and about management, but until you have skilled workers, semi-skilled workers, professionals, like unless until you have people of such varying degrees, 
you will not really know how to be a leader, mm-hmm. you know? And I appreciate yeah. this so much in your story because yeah. this through line as well, it, I think learning about your dad through your eyes and through all the different experiences you've had, I think they inform exactly what you said when we started talking about boarding school, how you said you really didn't fall into this idea of compliance because he never really taught you that. He never modeled that for you. So there was nothing for you to like fall back on as well, this is what I was already taught, so let me just follow along with it. You were taught to be brave, you were taught to be fearless, you were taught to question, right? Um, even though you said you, you made your little transition yeah. from pre-Alima and, and post-boss Alima, um, I really still find it interesting that at the end of the day, you, you kind of had to go through all of these different stages to become the leader that you are. And let me know if, if, if I am... Yeah. Over, overstating what you're describing to us here, but that's that's what I'm getting from this conversation so far. All right, so as we transition into Boss Bay, you know, Alima and your own company and your own brand, I think to wrap up your dad's, your experience with your dad, can you sort of let us know what are some like three key things business-wise that you learned, you know, from working with your father that you have replicated in your own company in the ways, in your own business model? I think, <laughs> I think um, working so close with an African dad who is also an entrepreneur, um, you see certain faults, right? You see certain things um, that I can look back and say certain things that he, I, in my opinion, I think he should have done differently for his business. And so with that knowledge, with that knowledge and with that experience, having worked for him, these were things that I tried not to do in my business. So very early on, let me just give it to the professionals to do what they have to do. Like when it comes to the money bit, like the accounting bit, let me give just give it to somebody, let them do it. And then they can guide me and let me know where I'm going wrong. Just, and then taking advice, like, you know, stepping back and then taking advice and looking at, not looking at it from an, an emotional point of view, but trying to be as thoughtful as I can be. So those were things that I have picked that I picked up with my experience working for my dad and things that I have tried to avoid, mistakes that I've tried to avoid in order for my business to thrive. So that's what I would say. Oh yeah. Those are those are really, really good ones. Um especially knowing knowing when to bring in a professional. I can't tell you how many times you know, people want to be the ones to do it, even with our own company where, yeah, I I would love to be able to sit in Canva and come up with a bunch of branding guidelines, but I'm not an expert. You know, there's so much value in knowing like my expertise starts here and it ends here. And yes, while I can sit here and put in 10,000 hours and be as great at it as you are, I can also just bite the bullet, be more productive and more hands-on where I'm actually needed and bring in somebody whose role it actually is. It solves so much in terms of like time wasting, in terms of like productivity. I, I really, really do like resonate with that lesson as, as you've described it for sure, Alima. So let me get now into Belo Edu. Let's talk about Belo Edu. So this is your ninth year. Um, so we have nine years of a happy accident? How did we get here? Because you left us with your mom started taking you to the seamstress. You started giving the seamstress your own fashions. And then all of a sudden we have a company. 
Like, what, what goes through this? What goes through this? How we get here? <laughs> We're far from a company at that stage. So, let's say we go back to the year when I used to follow my mom to her seamstress to get stuff made. My cousins and friends were like, oh, well, I like this. Because I was experimenting with tie-dye or spare, like whatever fabric I could get my hands on for my mom. So, with tie-dye, with wax pens, with, you know, um, just monochromatic colors and uh, I, I quickly knew what like you know what I gravitated towards so I don't do a lot of you know colors I don't do a lot of patterns and um, so after I quit working for my dad and I decided to move to Accra I wanted to ideally I had wanted to work with a company like you know that would give me an experience in the fashion business what year was this Hmm. I moved to Accra in 2010. That's when I moved to Accra. The whole plan before moving, or the ideal situation that I wanted, was to work in a fashion company. But then I didn't find any company that, you know, resonated with me. There were individual fashion designers that were working, but then it wasn't like the kind of business that I wanted to to be a part of. And I didn't even know what role I would play. So I found work with a furniture design company which was a woman-owned factory a reputable company and she wanted someone to be an interface like you know between the design team and her clients so which i thought was perfect i mean i could start talking to clients to understand what they need and you know so that's communicated to the design team and then we offer our service and our products and so i worked for her i lasted i think i lasted maybe a month and a half and then i quit I quit because there was no consistency. She, once again, it was it was an example of, you know, what we do here as entrepreneurs, where we don't, you know, we don't like to take a lot of suggestions and criticisms from other people. So you sit with her Monday morning, have a meeting that this is what we're doing, and by Tuesday afternoon she comes in, she's changed her mind, and yeah, so. It was just, it was just too much for me. So I quit, I quit, I quit. And when I quit, I started working part-time for a boutique ad agency, a creative agency. So I was doing the admin, really good with, you know, like, you know, organizing stuff. So I was doing the admin for them. And then I was using some of my part-time hours to actually go for a pattern drafting class. This was in 2010. So I did that up until the end of 2010. And then 2011, I think it was 2011, I found a job working as a personal assistant for an individual who had political ambitions to be like, he, he wanted to be, he was running or planning to run as a member of parliament for a constituency here in Accra. And my job, was to manage his personal affairs, not to even be part of his political um, ambitions. So his private businesses and stuff, just managing his calendar, scheduling his meetings, um, being, you know, lazing between him and all these other businesses that he was working or being a part of. And that was a stepping stone. Through that, I started working for an airline company that he had set up with some other Ghanaian investors. So I started becoming that interface. And then we were at a stage where they were getting their paperwork from the authorities, like civil aviation. So I was handling that. 
I was managing the pilots that were coming in and flying the aircraft, making it like, you know, they're situated. So that opened a lot of doors for me. And so that, that really helped me into saving money. So all this while, I still had the idea, the fashion business. Even people knew that I had like, you know, I had a clothing line, but I wasn't putting myself out there because I quickly learned when I moved to Accra, I quickly learned that the way I saw the business of fashion wasn't the way that these other designers were seeing it. Mm-hmm. Everybody was so quick, you know, to be in the limelight. Let me go do a fashion show. There's an article about me, mm-hmm. pictures about me on socials. And I just wanted the exact opposite. I wanted to, like, you know, do my work in the background and so that I could, you know, form a reputable brand. Mm-hmm. And in 2013, I like to think, um, I think I'm growing. I don't remember my days very well. So I think 2013, my sister, introduced, my sister introduced me to a friend of hers that she had met in the banking sector, her work, mm-hmm. who was also half Nigerian, half Ghanaian, who was also interested in fashion. So we're like, okay, great. Maybe, we should, you know, can we talk about partnering? Because mm-hmm. it was so exciting. Like, it was a time when there weren't a lot of partnerships in, um, in fashion in Ghana. So we decided, like, you know, let's, let's, you know, bring together our forces, our strengths, and form mm-hmm. a brand. And that's why the name is Bello Edu. So Bello is, is my surname. Edu is her surname. Gotcha. And we came together. Because at, at that time, she had her brand. I had my brand name. Mm-hmm. So we said, like, let's come together. So 2014. So we launched Bello Edu in 2014. Or oh, I say I launched Bello Edu in 2014. June 2014. Because just before we launched, she decided she decided to take a step back and wanted to pursue things on her own mm-hmm. and i felt we had come a long way mm-hmm. that i didn't want to change the name back mm-hmm. i didn't want to change the name back because i felt people wouldn't take the brand seriously mm-hmm. so i maintained it and i've been on this journey by myself since 2014 and we launched yeah we launched it was a successful launch it was beautiful. I remember very well. Such a very, like, it was such a quaint evening. It was really well. My best friend came to do the makeup. Like, <laughs> we bootstrapped. <laughs> I remember we pushed launch events. Mm-hmm. All this time, I had a full-time job, if you know what I mean. Oh, wow. So, launch in 2014, I had a full-time job. And where I lived, I had, a, I had this tiny house where I lived. It had a back room which was more like a laundry room, sort of, because that's what the washing machine was. And then I had workers. I had, like, two workers who were sewing for me in that back room. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, happened from, that happened from 2014 till about end of 2015. Mm-hmm. And then I found space. Um, I found space um, on the Spintex Road, I got that space. It was actually one of my cousins of my sister's businesses and then they had moved out. Mm-hmm. So I took over the rent and used that space to house, like, you know, the workshop had more workers. I think I probably had maybe four or five workers at that time mm-hmm. sewing for me for there, from there. And they bring the staff all the way to my house in the airport residential mm-hmm. and clients will come to airport residential to fit their pieces. This time, very few people knew I was, you know, actively engaged in this and in 2015 
going to 2016, I knew I wanted to pursue this full time. So I started saving money towards finding space. And even mentally, I remember thinking, I'm going to maintain that workshop space all the way out to Spintex and then just find a space for the shop. Very quickly did I learn that the, rent, the rate of rent in Accra was set up. There was oh no gosh. way I could manage two different properties. So I spoke to a friend of mine to help me find space. And one day I found a space in East Ligon, which was taken over by a law firm, but the law firm wanted out of their contract. Mm -hmm. So they said they'll introduce me to the law firm. Because what they didn't like, I saw as potential. <laughs> so they introduced me to the landlord. So I took it over. I found the space that we're currently in. So the space that you visited us in, Binja, I found it February 2017. Signed my lease for May. I got my lease May 2017. And then we moved in. Production moved in of August 2017. And then the shop was opened November 2017. You, one, you're juggling your full-time job on one side, right? And launching on the other side with two seamstresses, right? Um, how? How? And tell me where, like, your mom, your mom, your dad, people around you, what were they saying? Because it's not like you were doing small thing, even though you're saying, yeah, it was in, they were in the second room of my house. And <laughs> you're still selling. You're still technically a designer, at that point, we were selling nothing. I'll tell you, at that time, it was just an expensive hobby. You know, I had a full-time job, so I was just throwing... Every month, I would pay my workers, whether I had made clothes or not. I would experiment. If somebody ordered, fantastic. If nobody ordered, not a problem. I'll still pay my workers. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't tackling it as a business. It was still very... You know, we're still in our experimenting stage and yeah. you know so long as i have a paycheck i'm able to pay for for the two workers um working for me that whole period is a very important period because um i was quickly able to define exactly who my target market um mm -hmm. was or is and i also grew confident in in the brand personality that i had developed because mind you prior to that Everything was modeled after my taste mm -hmm. and what I wanted. And it was such a, it was such a refreshing um, acknowledgement when I found people that message resonated with. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes you think you're the only one that wants something. But mm -hmm. then I quickly realized there were a lot of women that were thinking in my lines. Mm -hmm. And it was so refreshing. It made me more confident in the brand personality. So I didn't mm -hmm. waver in the brand personality because... This was at a time where, you know, African fashion was being um, identified with African prints, mixing African prints with, with contemporary fabric. And I wasn't mm -hmm. doing that. I was just working with solid colors, with your satins and your mm -hmm. cottons. We even I even started off with basics, like, you know, mm -hmm. white shirts, black shirts. So stuff that you could easily wear, like, you know, for something casual to wear on the weekend. And I stood by it. It was mm -hmm. very, I think that period actually really solidified the clarity. And I, mean, I was very selfish in my thoughts, but that period where I, I describe as the expensive hobby period mm -hmm. really solidified what the vision that I had for the brand because mm -hmm. I realized that people actually resonated. There are a, lot of, a lot more people resonated with the message or with what the brand represented. So I would say that's what I learned yeah. or got from that period. And I would say, um, I talked 
people, I tell people I didn't tackle this as a serious business until 2017 when I took a whole freaking house out of this. And I decided to break the wall and, you know, to, to put glass. I'm like, okay, damn, well, you're here. So now mm-hmm. you can't afford to fail. Because mm-hmm. you're breaking somebody's wall, you put glass, so you better make it work so you can pay rent. And, mm-hmm. and that's been the journey since. Transitioning from a very expensive hobby to a business. I mean, yeah. we're not a profit-making business as but now, but yeah, we make do. <laughs> Absolutely. I think this is a common, you know, I think it's a common thread between all the amazing, like, boss women like yourself that we've spoken to from season one to season two of our podcast. That, that thread remains the same throughout, which is everyone started from somewhere, you know, and when they first started in their various, you know, ventures and initiatives, it wasn't about gaining monetary, you know, um, success at that point, right? It was really the grind, the hustle, the, you know, putting their brand out there, putting their name out there, building a portfolio, building a, you know, a rapport. Um, And I think a lot of times when you're in the entrepreneurial space, when you're not seeing that monetary gains, you think you're not successful, right? You think like, oh my gosh, like nothing is happening. When in actuality, a lot is happening. This is what is needed to move that machine, you know, for it to become well-oiled, you know, it's it's the background work that it takes to get you to where you currently are right now, the success that you see right now. And I think this is an important key point, you know, for anybody listening, you know, as an entrepreneur, starting off a business is not easy. You're not going to see profit, you know, within the first few couple of years, but that it's not for you to give up either, right? It's for you to say, you know what? I know I'm going to sacrifice a few years not to see profit because I know what the long-term vision is going to look like. And right now it's about me grinding. It's about me hustling. It's about me putting my brand, you know, out there. It's about me building all of all the various tenant that is needed for my brand or my company or my initiative to become like a well-oiled machine. And I think there's something that, you know, all of our um, entrepreneur women have spoken to, you know, regardless of what sector they were in. So you mentioned something else that I would like for us to tease out a little bit. I know you said, you know, when you started, mm-hmm. you were focusing a lot on African, fa- you know, fabrics and really going hard, you know, on that angle. I know your company prides itself in sourcing local fabric in Ghana and utilizing that to make, you know, all, all your various amazing, exquisite like pieces and collection. Um, and I know that's also part of your goal is, you know, really pouring back into the economy and creating job, you know, job creation investment for local you know local Ghanaian business so I'd like to know like walk us through the sourcing process are these um women-owned um fabric companies factory studios like how how does that look like how do you source the fabric how do you identify who that vendor is and all of that okay so let me clear this because one time somebody said I'm, it sounded confusing the fabrics that we use are not made in Ghana I work with women-owned companies predominantly mm-hmm. women-owned companies. So these are women who are working in fabrics. A lot of the fabrics that we sell in Ghana, in fact, maybe 95% of the fabrics that are in Ghana are, are imported. Um, if you want if you want locally made fabrics, then we're talking about GTP. GTP does um, African print, wax print. And we don't work with wax print. Like, mm-hmm. so I work with women owned businesses, women. So as opposed to me going online and shipping my own fabrics, um, mm-hmm. early on, I decided there are all these women in the market and they're mm-hmm. importing fabrics from China, Turkey, India, wherever. 
and they're bringing mm-hmm. in the fabric. So mm-hmm. I'd rather buy from them so that at least they get the money and then they go back to, you know, importing mm-hmm. than importing it directly. So that's what we do. Mm-hmm. And then we also mm-hmm. work where we've, um, where we've manipulated fabrics. We've, mm-hmm. um, we've worked with women, once again, women-owned businesses where, you know, she's doing her own tie, she has her own tie-dye technique. Or, mm-hmm. bat- or batik technique and i'm very careful about the companies I, I want to work with predominantly women-owned enterprises mm-hmm. we're trying to push an agenda here mm-hmm. so our first stop will be let's find a woman-owned business that we can work with mm-hmm. and we work with them and um and that's how it's been um i find someone or a company that understands our peculiar needs mm-hmm. and we also understand their needs and what they're also doing so i'm very mm-hmm. intentional i know okay maybe she, um, she's running a tie-dye business or a weaving business and mm-hmm. she's giving back to her community so mm-hmm. we work with we, we prefer to work with such a person because mm-hmm. it means that indirectly we're also healthy because mm-hmm. if i'm buying from you then you're making me to be able to support your mm-hmm. um, your initiatives so those are the things that we look out for gotcha so with that being said also to transition a little bit the fashion the fashion industry sometimes can be very like oversaturated across the board regardless of whether it's ghana or a different country right um and just you know as we're talking and especially young you know Guinean fashion designers are hungry right now and coming up what was some of the you know marketing initiatives that you utilize to truly set your brand apart to truly create that niche for yourself and for people to recognize you know Bella Edu as its own you know its own fashion as when you see Bella Edu like a Chanel or like a Dior like you recognize the you know the uniqueness of that brand like what did were there any special marketing strategies or brand awareness building strategies that you utilize that maybe could be some pointers for young for young you know fashion designers coming up that are also interested to date the only branding strategy and that wasn't even intentional the only branding strategy that we a marketing strategy that we've employed is word Mm -hmm. of mouth and why is that because when i started it i had this idea that the brand in fact anybody who knows me knows that for the longest time i didn't even want to be the face of the brand because mm-hmm. i thought or strongly believed that the brand should be strong enough to stand on its own our only goal was to make well-made pieces um, with superior fabrics superior craftsmanship mm-hmm. excellent customer service and that would do the talking for us mm-hmm. i always say not here to convert anybody to be a Belodu woman. I feel like you're either a Belodu woman or you're aspiring to be. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the middle. So I speak to the person who actually understands our aesthetics. Or mm-hmm. I speak to the young lady or the other, you know, or the other lady who wants to look look and feel a certain way. Like maybe she's looking up to a woman somewhere else and that woman is a Belodu woman. So she understands, okay, then this is how I need to dress. Mm-hmm. This is how I need to look. It was mm-hmm. good confidence is going to boost my confidence so for me it was never about you know using a setting platform or strategy to make that noise my strategy mm-hmm. was do it well serve your clients well mm-hmm. and then they'll do the work for you gotcha moving forward i know mm-hmm. that i know the importance of having marketing strategies mm-hmm. but 
my head is, I'm so hung up in my creative process. Mm-hmm. I can't even think through like, you know, what mm-hmm. marketing strategy. So I'm like, I want to get to the point where either I have an in-house team mm-hmm. and we're sitting through, you know, once a month, tell me this is what you're doing. This mm-hmm. is what you require of me. And then push that agenda. Mm-hmm. But I feel like we've pushed the word of mouth and we still do the word of mouth. You know, let's serve our clients well. Yeah. And let's have a strong message that. Yeah. And the business will grow. All that we've done so far. Because this is your approach. This is the Alima Bello Edu way. Is this is this the advice that you would actually give um, somebody coming up? Absolutely. There's no point in investing heavily in a marketing strategy if the product is not of a certain standard. You know, so I would say absolutely. It shouldn't be your only strategy, but it has to be on top of your list. It has to be on top of your list. But then again, I also say, you know, we all do things. We all have our different reasons for doing different things. So if you're trying to bring, if you're trying to um, establish a long-lasting brand, then of course, this should be important to you. Excellent customer service should be important to you. Good um, quality craftsmanship should be important to you. But if you're looking to, you know, max out and make some money in the short term, then by all means, do your trendy clothes, throw it out there, sell it, and cash out. But if if you're trying to build a long-lasting brand that I'm hoping that in some years to come, um, women in Southern Africa could say, oh, we have... We can get Baloidu in Kenya. We can get Baloidu DRC. I want people in West Africa. I want, to go, I want to grow beyond Accra and Lagos. I want someone in Abidjan to say, I can go to three stores. I can go to three stores and have Baloidu. I want someone in Dakar to go and say, I can go to two stores and find Baloidu. I want people in Northern Africa. How am I going to do that if, if my partnership is, you know, it's not the best? And if my quality of is bad so uh yeah definitely focus should be on quality craftsmanship excellent customer service you have to listen to your customers and you have to provide good service because the one's going to keep you in business but then the customers would only come the customers would only come if they really believe in your messaging or or what I say, if their perception of what your brand is, is aligned to what your perception of your brand is. So you need to do that work. If you don't do that work, you could throw, you could have so much money. You could have, the, you could have Ogilvy, you know, doing your marketing for you. And mm-hmm. it will fizzle out. You know what? I think what I'm getting from you, um, Alima, is that first, obviously, it's quality. You know, you, you've allowed the quality of your brand to speak for itself. But I also think you understand your target really, really well. You know, your target women really, really well. And I think that has been the bulk of your quote unquote marketing strategy because you understand that target, you know, Bella Adu is a, is a certain type of woman. It's a certain caliber of woman. You know what I'm saying? It's not made for everybody. And I think that's the mistake people made a lot of time in businesses, regardless of whether it's fashion or, you know, or other um, fields, is that we want to do it for everybody. And that's why we, we tend to spread our stuff and start doing all types of ish that doesn't even make sense. It's not even on brand. It looks a hot, tacky mess because we want to do, want to make money. And in the, in, in the fashion sense, you know, you're not a fast fashion brand. 
you know, you are a fashion house, you know what I'm saying? You have a certain caliber of women that you tailor, you know, you tailor to. And because these are a certain type of women, that's how you, you also tailor your, your strategy, right? To, to, to align with them. And I take, you know, I take, you know, um, your brand, for example, when you think of Chanel and Dior, they don't go outside of their niche and their target, you know, who their target clients are. You know what I'm trying to say? They're not adapting certain strategy just because they, they they are very clear on the type of clientele they have, the caliber of customers they have, and that's where they tailor their efforts. And I, and I sort of see that with yours as well. So I think the, the sum of this to any young designer coming up is know, know your brand, know your niche, and know your target. Once you have those those things very clear out, then you're able to tailor your strategy, you know what I'm saying, to meet that it's need, awesome. right? It's a little bit even more selfish. And I use the word selfish in this sense. I was listening to Bozoma St. John. She recently did an interview on Dara of a CEO. It's a, I really highly recommend that podcast episode. And she she described it in, in terms of what... Um, Alima has alluded to a couple of times. She said she built this brand based on what she liked, right? She's, she's her target. Like if she would wear this and if she thinks that this is cool for me, right, then she creates it. And I think that's why I use the word selfish because I think keeping her at the center of why she creates and what she's creating is why we have Belu Edu, you know, and, and feel free to chime in if, if I'm if I'm misrepresenting you, Alima. But that's what I have caught. And I think I was listening to a couple of other creatives. Like, uh, you guys know Hyatt um, Rida. She started um, the Koi Studio in uh, Chicago, um, also Ghanaian. But she mentioned something along mm-hmm. the same lines where she said, the day you start like catering to others is the day you've lost the plot pretty much because she creates for herself and what she thinks is relevant to what she likes. And I think that's what I heard Alima say a couple of times is I started creating my own things and other people liked it. And so I've been creating things that I like and other people are finding inspiration in that. And, and let me know if, if I'm, if I'm misrepresenting here, but I think that's what I'm getting as, as a key as well here is you, you kind of have to be selfish in this creation process. You have to be, you have to be selfish. You have to be almost arrogant in the creative process. Mm-hmm. Like, cause mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's my interpretation it's my art piece it's my interpretation it's my creativity. Mm-hmm. And what would be the point in coming into a space and mimicking somebody else's point of view or art, you know what I mean? That it means I have no personality. For sure. It's, it's my art piece, it's my interpretation. And then you have to be clear in your messaging that um, you're so clear in your messaging that when people see your messaging, those who resonate with it, resonate with it. I always say, and I think I'll forever say, I am not here to convert body's child or any woman mm-hmm. to be a Belloidu woman. I cannot do that. I'm not a good marketing person, so there's no way I can convert. I can only do what I know I can do best. And yeah. is to, you know, interpret what I see. See a dress, see a fabric, take inspiration from it and then interpret it my way. For knowing sure. that um my customers want it. And I think that is your responsibility as an as a creative person mm-hmm. to 
bring out your genius. So yes, the, so the, so the industry is saturated and so what? Bring out mm-hmm. your genius. That's what people connect to. Mm-hmm. I always say nobody walks into my studio naked. Nobody walks into the studio naked looking for a dress. Everybody's fully clothed. <laughs> but then, you know, the messaging is clear. So they're able to, they're able to understand my perspective and it, it gels with their perspective and we keep mm-hmm. it moving. And mm-hmm. I think that's what I owe the world. I don't owe the world to go and pick up somebody's genius and copy it and then say yeah. I'm fair to everybody. Yeah. No. For sure. No. For sure. I owe it to the world to bring up mine. That's yeah. It. No, for sure. Absolutely. And you know what? All right. So an African girl magic moment, because you know, at a series of ends, we love ourselves some good African girl magic moment. And in this moment, our boss babe, creative director, founder, okay, had the opportunity to not just represent Ghana, okay, I'm gonna need you to understand this part, but represent the continent of Africa <laughs> at Portugal Fashion Week recently. So, okay, my drop, please, thank you. Uh, you debuted your collection, Triumph, I, you know, I believe, and could you, Walk us through that experience. What was that experience like, you know, represent the continent and getting the chance to truly showcase your brand, you know, for a, a different market? Um, and just how was that whole experience like? Um, yeah, F- F- Portugal Fashion Week was in March. We participated last year, March. Mm-hmm. I think I must have seen the application in January. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those um, applications where, I wasn't even thinking too heavily about like, oh, this will be a nice platform. Just mm-hmm. see. Because I'd seen the first one that they had done in October and I'd seen the designers that went. I'm like, oh, looks interesting. Mm-hmm. Seems like we could fit. I'd already started putting together, like, you know, I had samples of collections that I was putting together. So I didn't even have a full blown collection then. Usually we have two collections in a year, March, March or April, and then September, October. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, let me just apply. And then I got in. Mm-hmm. And I was so underprepared that I didn't even have a Schengen visa in my passport then. So by the mm-hmm. time that they did the selection, that you've been chosen, mm-hmm. now it became a headache off. How quickly can I get a Schengen visa? Mm-hmm. And now how can I finish the collection and then look at the collection here and see if it made sense, mm-hmm. all gelled up together. Um. We did that. We got our visa. We put out to, together the collection and went to Portugal. Mm-hmm. And the, it was one of it was one of the most um, exhilarating experiences that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. I met with young African creatives from Nigeria, from South mm-hmm. Africa, from Egypt, mm-hmm. and there was Morocco, the Caribbean, and these are people like everybody was so happy to be there, mm-hmm. happy to collaborate. Um, we're still, we still chat mm-hmm. um, on WhatsApp uh, and Instagram, keep up with mm-hmm. what each person is doing in their business. And I think that's what, that's what we're lacking back at home mm-hmm. here. The spirit of collaboration. That community. Um, so it was very refreshing. It was very refreshing being in that environment just for a few days. But then being able to build a network, or but we're able to build a network of people, mm-hmm. you know, different creatives, 
and us coming together and learning from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I hope to go back to Portugal Fashion Week. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I hope that what we did last March is a stepping stone to, like, you know, us perhaps, you know, being like a permanent feature. Mm-hmm. And each year, each year, if we can afford to be on the platform, we'll be on the platform. But it was such a, it was such, um, it was such a great experience. And yeah. I, I, you know, I can't even thank the organizers enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't thank I can't thank Lulu enough for putting together such a marvelous thing and still working hard at it. Yeah. And you know, every March I go to but they still take um brands from Africa and the Caribbean mm-hmm. to oh, Portugal gotcha. Fashion Week. And it's open, it's opening doors. Um people are seeing African fashion differently now. Mm-hmm. Um for sure. We still have a long way to go, but then it's definitely opening doors. It was such yeah. a marvelous experience and I can't I can't even express that enough. Yeah. So, what inspired uh, your collection Triumph for Portugal Fashion Week? And can you tell us, like, what what was Triumph about? Um. <laughs> so there's this thing that I always say that you know how some people can give you like you know a whole you know prose as to like you know inspiration for their collection. It never works that way with me. I'm inspired by everyday activity. So I could see something on the street today and it stays in my mind. Oh, I'll take a picture, I'll do a sketch. And when mm-hmm. the time comes to put together a collection, depending on the mood that I'm in, like, you know, mm-hmm. or what I feel like, when, especially when I listen to my clients when they come into the studio, and sometimes you know the mood. In 2022, I mean, we're still coming out of, we're still coming out of work. COVID restrictions, COVID, people are now, you know, we're now finding their feet. Like finally we thought, okay, now we can breathe easy. And I was in a space and then the Belladu woman was in a space where she was like, oh, like, you know, we've overcome whatever challenges that we've had in our personal lives. We've overcome, we're here to celebrate. So for me, all I could see was pieces that she could wear to celebrate. So if she's wearing it to work, wearing it to an event, or wearing it just to chill with her friends. It's like, these are pieces that I saw the woman in, like she could celebrate in and saying, here I am. I've overcome whatever challenge that I had and I'm here and triumphant. And that, that was it. But I, it's never too complicated with a design process for me. Like I said, it could be anything. I have sketches. I have swatches that are there you know, for years that I've used. I'll do the sketch as soon as my pattern um, cutter is available to do something, like, okay, can we try this pattern? Yeah. And when it's close to a time, I look at what the season is, like, you know, the colors of the season, mm-hmm. what fabric do I think will work out, and then we mm-hmm. do it. Sometimes we do it, and then it doesn't make the cut in mm-hmm. the final selection process. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it does. And then sometimes we put together a collection and maybe of seven dresses, mm-hmm. and out of the seven dresses, you, could re- you realize only three is really speaking to the woman, mm-hmm. you know? So it's never, I never have any, there's never any poetic reasoning behind mm-hmm. my inspiration. It's just everyday life, literally everyday life. Mm-hmm. So my, my question then becomes one of um, the green variety where we're talking about money. 
Um, you've you've talked <laughs> or at least walked us through growth, right? Belo Edu has gone through so much growth over the nine years, mm-hmm. right? We started with two people, um, and now we're at a whole atelier, is how I like to call it. When I came to Belo Edu, I personally, for full disclosure, listeners, I have been a shopper at Belo Edu. Um, I have seen where she actually works and when she talks about people, people are there. When she talks about a production line, a production line exists. I can testify to it. Um, but let's talk a little bit about growth and about when it is you decide to make the moves you decided to make. Um because like I said, we've gone from two to, I can, maybe you can even tell us a little bit more about your team as well and who's on it. But let's talk about what, what prompts your growth. What, what do you see as the trigger for the next step? Is it money? Is it team? Is it trends? Like wh- wh- what is it? A combination of everything. A combination of everything. Because we've, we've reached, um, we've reached a, a point where now our questioning is, do we increase our own production capacity stuff or do we mm-hmm. work with third parties? And the economy of the country has, the economy of the country has changed so much that mm-hmm. I would have to, because at some point I'm like, okay, at some point last year, at some point I'm like, yeah, I need to find a bigger production space and hire more people. But then because the economy has switched significantly, mm-hmm. I'm like, why would I have to do that? I'm not going to hire more people. So now we're at a point where we're finding third-party producers mm-hmm. to work with. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing now. Hopefully hopefully that will be sorted out like in a month or two. Um, and other growth areas. So that's for production. And then we have, you know, the front side of the business. We're looking to work with more retailers so that we can, you know, expand our reach. Um, we're looking to, once we also are able to increase production capacity, then we can open wide our, our e-commerce platform and do and go heavy on e-com. So that's where we are at the moment. At least by next September, we should have about five retailers. Um, that we're working with. So we've started the, started the conversation now. Just so by next September, we have that unlocked. So that's where, so that's where we are at the moment. Oh, nice. And, and financially, right? Um, I'm sure you can walk us through. And again, we, we ask for full transparency on the, on the podcast because this is one of those other things where women just never talk about, right? We're, we're here talking about businesses and dollars and cents. And, you know, you talked about how your dad barely didn't pay you while you were working at the factory. And now you've, you've consistently paid, you know, people who have worked for you over on the production side. Um, so what is it looking like mm-hmm. revenue-wise? So Bello Edu, when you were just you and the two guys, as you mentioned, there was not much revenue there, Right. Um, what what are you guys looking like in terms of where you are now and what you're forecasting? So this year has thrown a curveball, but we were growing steadily. Um, this year, serious curveball nationwide. But I would say 
that we've reached a point where now the company can actually take loans. There was a point where, you know, the bank didn't know us. So, yeah, the bank actually so acknowledges you as people. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so now we're at a point where I can call my bank and be like, yo, I need to fund production for the next three to six months. What does it look like I can get? You know what I mean? So there's growth in that area. But there was so much growth last year. In 2022, 2021, 2022, there was so much growth. And then this year, this year, the economy's just thrown a curveball. And we're, you know, we're, we're just trying to make sure we can, we're going to survive this year. And then, you know, with the experience of this year, we, we can do better next year. Yeah. Yeah. And if a lot of you guys who are listening are not familiar, right? Um, I know Ghana has had hyperinflation or a lot of inflation in the sense that, you know, today, uh, you know, you could be at one dollar is like five hundred CDs. This is an example, guys. And tomorrow you wake up, one dollar is now two thousand CDs, and yeah. and it's been making huge leaps. Um, where if you're a business owner, you don't really know if what you have valued your goods and your services at today is going to be what you will value them at tomorrow. Um, and mm-hmm. so when Alima is talking about the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, the economy has been playing a lot of games on them, that's what she's she's referencing is the fact that there's been a lot of fluctuation in terms of their economy and their currency and the valuations um, associated with that. So Alima, with regards to your team, right? You've mentioned the pattern maker, you've mentioned people in production. What does that look like? And what do you look for as you build your team? Um, And then also, I know you're saying you're currently working with a couple of third party, but you're hoping that doesn't, you know, become the norm. What, What are you looking for in terms of team? And maybe you can pull from some of the lessons from your factory days, um, if if there are any. Commitment people who have who can work well with in teams and understand that there's a singular goal so i mean i want people who once you walk in yes we all have a personal goals that we have for ourselves but i always look out for when they walk through the gates and come to work at least during that period there's a singular goal which is whatever goal is the company's it's the singular goal and to be a part of and and that's what I look out for. It's just that, you know, somebody who's like hungry and thirsty to grow. That's it. I don't expect people to come in polished and perfect. But once you're willing to grow, then then we're good. Yeah, I think that's fair. So who sits on your team? Who who makes up Bello Edu production? So let's see. I'm the creative director. Ideally, my only job to design clothes and then i have a chief of staff who runs the operation so i'll say like an operations manager then i have my retail who's in charge of retail and sales and and then we have production so um the chief of staff manages the whole production unit i just sit through my monday morning meetings um you know try and understand what's going on what needs to be done and what bill needs to be paid and tell me, <laughs> uh-huh. tell me if I have any appointments where I have to be sketching for clients, then I do that. Then we have production. So production, we have, we currently have a pattern cutter under training. Then we have a tailor. Then we have a sim. And then that's it. 
It's a very small, very small. Okay, small but mighty. I've seen not only the efficiency, but I've seen the output. So for a small team that, you know, churns out that level and that quality, I think it's, it really speaks to the unity of vision as, as you describe it. So long-term, Alima, where, where is Belo Edu going? Where is, we're looking at 10 years next year. Um, where is Belo Edu in, in 15? Where is Belo Edu in 20? Are we still Belo Edu? <laughs> oh, so we don't know the name, but it will still be a brand owned by Alima. Mm-hmm. And um, it will be a household name. So we want to pivot and do household stuff. Because um, I like interior. Um, the store, everything was designed by me. So at some point, we'd want to introduce some of that into, mm-hmm. into the business. And we, we, like I said, we want to... We want to grow. We want to be easily accessible, so physically accessible in various cities across the world, mm-hmm. um, where you know will be easily recognizable. Um, we want to be able. We want to be able to also help educate the young ones coming up in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's a, there's a huge disconnect between what they are taught in school concerning fashion and what really happens in the business of fashion. Mm-hmm. So I, I really want to be an advocate where we're helping young people in, in understanding the business of fashion. And then mm-hmm. I also have a personal dream that at some point I could be able to invest in fashion startups mm-hmm. and help them I love that. The design process, all the marketing. Mm-hmm. So because when you look at you when you look at our contemporaries in Europe or in the States, they have access to these markets where people invest in them and then you know push them mm-hmm. over the edge. And then we have and we have the same talent here, or if not better talent. Mm-hmm. So a personal dream of mine that in a few years mm-hmm. I could start off with brands or whatever and you know help propel them for the global market yeah so that's that is the i remember the first time that we sat in in your atelier um the one thing that i think i had said i said this is like where are the candles that are made by Alima, where are the coffee table books? I I feel like you remember this conversation because when you say like that's a long-term vision, I definitely concur because I was like, the scents need to be on point because the environment you have already created at your atelier is insane. And now to like elevate it with a specific sensual experience of like, this is everything that you see, you taste, you touch. Everything is like specially curated by Alima. Oh my God. I, I, I am, I am in line to shop e-commerce set me up like DHL can get us anywhere. (laughs) So I'm, I'm extremely excited about this vision. Um, so yeah, take it away patience. Absolutely. So, you know, as we are wrapping up, you know, our conversation with the boss lady herself, we know she's obviously y'all heard our girl is a very busy woman. She wears many hats. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, as a businesswoman, as a creative, I'm sure your day to day always changes. And there's a lot of fires that you have to, you know, um, you know, turn off and troubleshooting and how crazy running a business can get. 
So what are some of your self-care routine that you incorporate to, you know, help you have a well-balanced life and investment within yourself? And, you know, Benja and I are the self-proclaimed ambassadors of the baby girl lifestyle, the soft girl lifestyle. And so, okay, purr, purr. And <laughs> we'd like to know, like, what, what does your self-girl lifestyle look like? Um... So I am very protective of my boundaries and time, mm -hmm. highly mm -hmm. protective. So I always say I have, a, I have a threshold for how many calls that I take in a day. Mm. There isn't a specific number. Mm -hmm. But when I feel like I have given so much of myself in a day, there's a point where I cut off and mm -hmm. I don't engage. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. um, just because... And people also have this thing where they feel like you're accessible at the studio, so they can pop in at any time. <gasps> nope. Pop in uninvited. You don't get access to me. Mm -hmm. I don't do that. Um, I, have, I take a lot of spa dates, to be honestly. Especially, I've realized I have a pattern where I do a lot of that when I'm stressed. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll go do my hair. Mm -hmm. I'll go do my nails. Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, I feel stressed. Like, mm -hmm. These are things that I do stress. And I spend a lot of time with my sister as well. So if I feel like today the studio feels too heavy and I can't mm -hmm. do any work, I just sit in the car and go over to my sister's mm -hmm. and just relax. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's what I do. Love it. No, no I don't exercise. I used to exercise a lot. Mm -hmm. That used to help as well. Mm -hmm. I don't exercise as much. Mm -hmm. So... That's it. Those are the those are the things I do. My routine. Yeah, and it's important. Like you know, before you can pour into other people's cup or even your business, you have to fill your own cup up as a you know businesswoman, a business owner. And when you're not good, your business can't be good. Your team members can't be good either. So it's important to always remember that level of investment back into yourself. Um, there's another potent, uh, important questions we like to ask at a series of ends as well, and it's as an African boss lady. What excites you about African women? <laughs> Our confidence. We're like magicians. We make anything happen. We mm -hmm. can make literally. We can make anything happen. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what excites me about African women. Mm -hmm. Aluma, honestly, this this has been again <laughs> such <laughs> such a an uplifting conversation so alima let's let's make sure we can we get all your social handles and emails etc just for the for our audio to ensure that we get that right so feel free to share any social media handles um how people can get a hold of you where they can get a hold of you um if you want to give your address as well for the atelier for our Ghanaian listeners where they can come and actually check out your work um, feel free to share. So we're located in East Legon in Accra, Ghana, number number six, Banana Street, East Legon, Accra, Ghana. Uh, Instagram handle is Bello Edu, Bello B E L L O E D U. My personal Instagram is Alima Bello, my full name. And um, if you send me a DM, I will definitely respond. I respond to DMs. My business page, we also respond to DMs. So if you send us a DM, we'll respond. Um, yeah, website is belloedwoman.com. You could go on there and send us a message or have a look at our business. And um, 
WhatsApp. Yes, WhatsApp. Business WhatsApp is plus 233-544-919-530. And we're very quick in responding to messages. So that's it. Awesome. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Another African woman showing us that we are all a series of ams. So go on and be all you can be. Bye.